This is like a throwback episode. Yeah. We're here in person. I know. It's weird. It's crazy. Except people don't need to hear us stuff food down our face. I, know. <laughs> I feel like they do. I feel like that's what they're really missing is me munching in their mouth. They're not. <laughs> I, I think we thought that was cool. And then people were like, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe not. Well, actually, you're a pretty yeah. gross eater too. Right. We're, we're oh, both I'm horrible. Disgusting. I'm horrible. Yeah, watching me eat is like watching someone that can't swim try to swim. Yeah. It's not pleasant. Oh, look who it is. More. More. Hi. What's up, dude? What's going on? How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm okay. I need a haircut, but otherwise I'm okay. Don't we all? Yeah. yeah. You look like you're in a uh, a bomb shelter. Yeah, that's my office. <laughs> they, treat me well. they treat me well. Nice. Nice. <laughs> this is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancosino. And I'm Ahmed Prakash. Today we have on a really great guest, an old friend of ours who happens to be the assistant professor of medicine at the Yale Medical School. His name is Moore Soller, and he, at this point, is actually on the floor dealing with COVID patients. Yeah, he's a critical care pulmonologist, so we need to hear what he has to say. All right, let's do it. More so, we wanted to have you on, um, but for various reasons. But I want you. Could you introduce yourself a little bit about what you do, and and then I got a whole list of questions for you. Uh, sure. Um, so my name is Moore Soller. Um, I am a pulmonary and critical care physician, uh, and I'm also an assistant professor uh, at Yale School of Medicine. And um, you know, I've spent the last couple of months sort of thinking and taking care of patients with COVID nineteen. All right. Um, so you're, how has it been in New Haven? Like what's been your experience in this situation? Like how is it different from your regular pulmonology critical care work? So um, I think early on, uh, Connecticut was hit hard. And uh, the first thing that the hospital did was um, it cleared out multiple floors uh, to prepare for a surge of patients that it was expecting. And so literally three or four floors of the hospital uh, were transferred to other parts of the hospital and we stopped doing elective procedures. Uh, consequently, um, you know, normally on a busy day, our intensive care unit has about 30 to 40 patients. Um, those numbers tripled uh, and they were majority uh, all COVID-19 positive patients uh, in the intensive care unit. Uh, many of them, most of them on ventilators. Uh, in addition, uh, most of the hospital uh, started uh, predominantly taking care of COVID-19 patients. We stopped seeing admissions to the hospital for routine things like, you know, in small infections, colds, uh, and everything was about COVID-19. And so at some point, the majority of patients that we were caring for were COVID-19 positive. Wow. So, I don't know. I mean, there's there's so much stuff that comes up. Let one of the things that maybe we can talk about is obviously you've dealt with, I mean, you're in critical care, right? So, so you've dealt with bad lung problems before. How would you describe it? Because the reason I'm asking is this is obviously it's been politicized, right? That many 
American leaders, global leaders talk about a mild flu that it's, you know, just, it's just this little thing, you know, if you're relatively healthy, you can kind of wince and bear it and it's fine. In your experience, what, what does it look like? The, uh, the, the politicization of this COVID-19 thing has been really remarkable uh, to watch. Um, there's a lot of science and there's certain things that we don't understand yet, but there's plenty of things that we know. Um, every year, people die of the flu. Uh, the mortality rate from the flu is less than 0.1%. And I think study after study has shown that this thing is much higher than that. You know, somewhere between 0.5 to 1% of all patients who catch COVID-19 uh, will die. Uh, in addition, um, uh, you know, a lot of patients with COVID-19 become hospitalized. And so the hospitalization rate for COVID-19 is somewhere around 10%. We don't know that number 100%, but many people get hospitalized. Once you're hospitalized for this thing, lots of bad things start to happen. So many patients get clots, um, clots in their legs, clots in their, uh, in, their, in their lungs, in their hearts, and even in their brains. They can have strokes. Um, that happens in about 10% of hospitalized patients, 10 to 20% oh get God. clots. Um, many patients, the most common symptom obviously is fevers and trouble breathing. And many patients end up requiring uh, extra oxygen. That's usually the reason why people get hospitalized is requiring oxygen. Um, and even though the mortality rate is somewhere between 0.5 to 1%, a lot of the patients who are ill from this thing will never go back to a normal life. Uh, and we don't know how that's going to shake up. It's very new, but but we do know that once you're in the intensive care unit, uh, uh, the majority of people never go back to living a normal existence. And so, yes, maybe the mortality rate is only 0.5 to 1%, which is that not that low at all. That's that's potentially millions of Americans dying, but at least fivefold of that potentially will 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 end up with some sort of chronic condition um, uh, from this thing. Can you? Can you tell us a little bit about when you say when people finally leave, they will never go back to normal. What are some of the uh, side effects or, or things they are going to have to live with? So, so um, we can extrapolate from uh, patients who have gotten sick in the past who end up as sick as some of the patients with COVID-19. Um, but for example, once you end up in an intensive care unit, a lot of people who had jobs can't go back to their jobs because they just uh, lack the ability to sort of concentrate or the or the ability to do the jobs they were doing before. Um, many patients who end up on ventilators are immobilized for days, weeks on end, and those patients never regain the function that they had before. Um, and um, and 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 you know that might be anywhere between requiring assisted living for the rest of your life to just having persistent weakness, fatigue, um, and neurocognitive issues. And 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 so you know just by ending up in an intensive care unit, you're in trouble. Uh, uh, from uh, in general, and a lot of patients, obviously, from COVID nineteen, are ending up in intensive care units. What's your um, view on masks, for or against? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, are are you? What do you? What do you think about like the government imposing a mandate saying that people should be wearing masks? It's the law; it should be enforced, etc. Um, a lot of these things are are sort of. Um, legal and cultural, but just sort of, let's talk about the benefits of the mask. Um, you know, when you wear a mask, uh, you are mostly protecting other people, right? So you are covering your mask so that if you sneeze or cough, the major way that we transmit this virus, that the people around you uh, will not get sick. And I, um, and I think that, you know, as human beings on this planet and living in a society, we should all just wear masks as that's just the right thing to do. Uh, it is really concerning uh, to me that people find it 
find that it's okay not to wear masks in public or think that it's the right thing to do. It's about liberty. It's, it's really about uh, protecting each other. Uh, the second thing is that there's very, 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 I really can't even think of them, uh, very few reasons why anyone could not wear a mask, right? So there are people with chronic lung diseases, um, but the worst thing for those patients would be to get coronavirus. And so, you know, my patients, I highly encourage them to get a mask. And there's all sorts of ways where even if you needed oxygen, you can wear it. The masks do not lower your oxygen levels particularly high. There are some rare situations, perhaps, that it could be detrimental, but those are exceedingly rare. And not for okay. people walking around and, um, you know, not requiring supplemental oxygen or not having any lung diseases. Even patients with asthma, like all those can tolerate wearing a mask. Um, and so there's really no very few medical reasons why patients should wear a mask. And uh, and it is only for your protection. And um, and it has just been mind boggling to watch uh, the number of people out there who feel like this is an issue about freedom and not an issue about caring for each other and, and trying to just stay safe and stay protected. Okay. We've covered masks. We've covered how horrible this thing is. Here's what I want to talk about. And I don't know if you can talk about it, but I, I think you can. People that think, you know, December, January, we're going to have a vaccine. We're going to mass produce and life's going to get back to normal. Can you talk about the reality of that or how false that probably is? Um, that's hard. Um, so, you know, there's been an unprecedented amount of private and public spending uh, to try to combat this thing. Currently, there's over 70 companies or 70 uh, groups working on a vaccine. Um, and uh, many of them have gone into phase two testing. Uh, and some of them are combining their phase two and phase three testing. And so, um, how, you know, how many phases there are is, there? Sorry. There are, say how again? Many, how many phases are there? There, there are generally three phases of testing. Okay. Uh, the first phase is just to see if the thing actually gets inside your body and works. Uh, so you find your dose. The second phase is for safety. And the third phase is for efficacy. Hmm. And um, we, there are many, many companies now. So there's about 70 uh, uh, vaccines that are being tested. The New York Times has a nice tracker. So you can check to see you know, where the different companies are. Uh, and there is a lot of optimism uh, that perhaps there will be a vaccine. Um, and on top of that, uh, governments are investing in the production of the vaccines even before we know the efficacy, because if they are efficacious and safe, they can quickly ramp up and, and uh, get those vaccines out. So that's the positive. Um, I think people are optimistic. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, there's also a sense of realism that there's a very good chance that, that the vaccines are never going to be as effective as we'd like them to be. Um, and so here are a few issues. Um, so the first issue is to make sure that the vaccines are safe. Uh, there have been times that we have developed vaccines, but testing turned out that the vaccines didn't protect us. It actually made us more susceptible to, the, to a disease. And so safety is going to be a major issue in the testing process. The second issue is going to be efficacy, right? Will the vaccine generate enough response in the people who get it to keep us from getting the virus or at least keeping us from getting severe infections from the virus? Uh, we do not know the answer. Um, and so um, it's that's just information that we're waiting for. And then the third part is, will the vaccine work in everybody? And so people who are elderly 
uh, tend to respond to vaccines in a different way than people who are younger. And we don't know how efficacious this vaccine will be in the elderly population, which is the population at most risk of, of getting a severe uh, COVID-19 infection or dying. So pre-COVID, when I would be at the airport or when I lived in New York, which I just moved from, and you see people from other countries wearing masks, <laughs> I used to think they were nuts. Is that something we should start getting used to? Like masks will become part of our life for a while? I, I think one of the reasons why people from other countries were wearing masks was their experience with SARS-CoV-1, the first SARS virus. Uh, that thing was deadlier than this virus and consequently got stopped earlier. Uh, but I think that was the trigger for people in other countries to start wearing masks. And I think that, uh, you know, we will live in a different world uh, after this pandemic is over uh, and a world hopefully that is uh, more, more, invests more research into trying to stop these things. And perhaps a world where we are wearing masks more frequently because, you know, of the knowledge that these things can spread. It's it, it's going to be, it's going to, you know, I don't think we know a lot about what's going to happen in three to four years. Um, but but the, the reason why a lot of the people from other countries are wearing masks is, is, is literally because of their experience from, from SARS-CoV-1. When you, when you watch, I don't know if you watch, but when you watch Dr. Fauci um, giving briefings, and I don't know if you could speak about it, but when you see him talk and you, and we know his record, and I think it's been a pretty good record um, to stand on. I mean, I think he's, he's done a lot of good for infectious disease. Um, when you see his advice and his briefings begin to get politicized as a doctor, um, does that frustrate you? What do you like? Cause I feel like I want to like jump through the, the television screen and scream, but I actually know nothing. So as someone who actually is like, no, yeah, that's right. Like, I can't believe he's trying, they're trying to discredit this guy. What, what does that feel like as someone that's battling it in an emergency room? Um, so, uh, yeah, Anthony Fauci is sort of like a, you know, a, a huge voice in the, in, in medicine. You know, there's this book that all, all medical students know about. It's called Harrison's uh, Book of Internal Medicine. He is one of the five authors of this, you know, multi-tomed uh, uh, giant uh, book. Um, and so, uh, and and so, and actually, in many ways, he just sort of is the is is the face of of medical expertise uh, and the idea that that people spend their whole lives thinking about infections, uh, transmission, uh, mortality rates, and uh, we know that not everybody is right, that science is constantly evolving and we're always trying to improve what we've known before, but we believe in it because it's the best that we have and that expertise matters. Uh, and so what you see is someone up there with real expertise who is saying things that, that you know, many of the things he's saying are just absolutely 100% right. And, and, and most of what he's saying is just what the belief of the, of the medical and scientific community is currently and is probably the right thing to do. And so to watch him be discredited uh, by people who are just politicizing this thing for their own personal game is just it's just terrible and, and disgusting. And it really is a discredit. It, it is dis as disheartening as possible to see uh, expertise being discredited by people who are politicizing it. Uh, it is science that's going to get us out of this mess. Right. It's it is people being objective and thinking about the right answer is going to get us out of this mess. 
you can't sort of will this thing away. You can't politicize this thing away. Uh, the virus doesn't care about your politics. Um, and so, you know, to watch a scientist and a, and a, and a, and a physician just uh, being discredited is really awful. There seems to be a, a similar sort of cast of mind with people who are, you know, try are dubious about Fauci and because, you know, maybe certain things have not panned out that he predicted, maybe it'll go this way, maybe it'll go that way. And precisely because of what you're talking about, because science, basically enlightenment thinking, if you want to call it that, is tentative and cumulative, right? It's always kind of shifting based on what is the new consensus and so on and new evidence. They, they're so absolute in their thinking that they don't believe that and then they're absolute about their liberty about not wearing masks and so on and you can't tell me what to do what i worry about is a coalition that seems to have emerged with people who tote assault rifles anti-vaxxers and then anti now anti-maskers Right, that these these are the people who seem to be congregating on various capital steps and and and, and shouting about freedom, um, and they're being cultivated by certain political quarters as well. So, in addition to the medical and scientific hurdles that have to be overcome for this for us to get maybe on the other side of this, whatever that may look like, um, what about? Do doctors think about these? I mean, they must, right? Like the political and cultural issues, like you have a patient who comes in, like, do you talk about this kind of stuff? Or is it like pure medical advice? Or do you talk about, well, you're living in society, you should, you know, maybe don't go to a party or, you know, does that come up? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're people too. And so, you know, I think uh, as physicians, you know, the, the anti-vaccine movement has been horrible to watch uh, because we know that they are safe. And we know that they're effective. And um, I think, again, it speaks to this notion that that science really has gone to where we where we are and it works uh, and we have to believe in it. I will say that that there's certainly times where, you know, you'll read one study and says red meat is good for you. And then you read another study that says red meat is bad for you. Uh, we do not know all the answers. And I think we are uh, we have to be comfortable that we don't know all the answers. And we also have to realize that, you know, our understanding of things are constantly evolving as our tests get better, as we look at things in new lights, uh, as we reevaluate problems. That's just the process of the whole thing. Um, but oftentimes that gets, uh, we, we as scientists poorly communicate that, I, the, that, that uh, uncertainty to the population. Uh, I think news media outlets seem to focus on the headlines and they don't dig into the details of the studies where, where that's where all the sort of real juice is. And consequently, people can take advantage of that, saying, oh, we don't know what we're talking about because a week ago you said one thing and now you're saying something else. Uh, that's just how science works. But there are certain things that we know are true, right? Every time we drop a ball, that ball falls because gravity is real, right? And we know that when we give patients vaccines and the vaccines have been tested, they work. Mortality from diseases that used to kill thousands of people has gone away over and over again. We know those vaccines are safe. We know that wearing a mask stops the spread of droplets. There's no question about that. There's no one who's going to come up tomorrow and say, oh, actually, vaccines, uh, masks don't stop the spread of things. And, and so we know a lot of information and, 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 and what we know is what we know. And those things are fundamental truths. And then we build upon those ideas. And, and as we build upon those ideas, sometimes we don't get it 100 percent right. But over time, we will get the answer right. And we just have to keep working at it. And so, like you said, when people take that uncertainty that we all have 
and use it and weaponize it to convince a group of people that we don't know what we're talking about, and you devalue science, um, those are tactics that really have been thought about or strategized by other countries to kind of bring us down in the past. And, you know, whatever, whoever is doing it, this notion that, um, that, that, uh, at, that experts don't know anything and that people should just decide for themselves what to do um, is, is, is tough because, because those experts have really spent a lot of time trying to think about the right answer and they've tested them and they've applied the scientific method and, and it's led us to where we are today. Um, you know, I would much rather be a patient today than I would be 100 years ago. Uh, where we didn't have antibiotics and we didn't have intensive care units and we didn't have treatments for things. And 100 years from now, we'll be even better than 100 years ago. Uh, we are get, slowly getting there over time. Uh, and so, and so I, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how upsetting it is when, when you know, people show up and they say, well, I don't believe in vaccines. It's not whether you believe in it or not believe in it. There's, this is the data. This is either ground truth or at least what, what the experts think is, is the best approach at this time. Yeah, I mean, so the major issue I think that scientists, uh, medical doctors, and so on will have is that people don't like uncertainty, right? And and if you look at you know even even just twentieth century history, the most dangerous people in the world are men without doubt. Right, that they're completely certain of themselves, and like no, they do no self-reflection, no self-critique, um, and that's. It seems like that's what's going on in a, on a societal level, right? That this this idea that we we don't have to, you know, doubt ourselves and don't have to, I don't know, uh, live with ambiguity. Right. I mean, I think that's that's one of the sort of testaments of intellectual maturity is a heightened tolerance for ambiguity. <laughs> and 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 there's there's not much of that. Right. I mean, it's I I don't know. I'm I'm are you optimistic about America clawing its way out of this? It, does it does it require, you know, a political leadership change? You think that's going to be something or is it or, or will the medical profession just sort of through their own blood, sweat, and tears, kind of try to pull us through, which they're already doing, but but I don't know. What do you think? I, um, you know, when you think about what are the things that got us here and where there could have been intervention, um, there are certainly examples of, thing, of places where, um, you know, there could have been improvement. Um, and if you think of it, and I think everyone would kind of agree that the biggest area that needed to be improvement was some sort of leadership in this whole process. Um, you know, did people know that this virus was coming to the United States? Probably. Could you really blame people for not acting fast enough? That's hard. Everything is easier in retrospect. But today, right now, we know that this thing is killing us. And yet, yet there continues to be this, this ongoing conversation about whether we should be wearing masks. Um, that is insane. Like, of course, we should be wearing masks. Uh, uh, and actually, we should be wearing masks and also thinking about other things that are more more challenging, right? So, like, do we reopen schools? Uh, how are we going to like reopen our economies? Like, these are tougher questions than just wearing a mask. And I think one of the one of the the problems here is that nationally, right, there has been no leadership to say, look, this this coronavirus is serious. It is killing people. It is hurting our economy, and we need a collective effort as Americans to try to stop this thing. And we have to believe in our experts who are telling us as what they, they, they are. 
And what we've seen more is that people have continued to ignore facts and uh, not step up as leaders. And consequently, uh, we are one, now one of the countries with the worst infectious rates and uh, some of the highest mortality. And you can compare us to other countries and other countries have done a much better job. Um, I don't know if you can talk about this, but can you explain to people that are even on the fence with this thing when when Corona is at its worst and it attacks somebody? Is this like having a heart attack where you shut your eyes and you die? Like, what is what is it like um, when this thing actually gets you? Can you actually talk about physically what happens to people and the pain they go through? Yeah. So. um so essentially with the virus, what happens is that it spreads like most respiratory viruses and it, you know, you mostly spread it by droplets. So breathing through your nose, breathing through your mouth. And um, about a third to maybe 30 to 40 percent of patients will never experience any symptoms. Right. We know that many patients are just will, or never many people will never experience uh, any symptoms. In, in the rest of the population, the majority of people will have fevers, cough, maybe a little bit of shortness of breath and some other sort of just general symptoms of like just feeling sick, down, you know, not feel, like having a good appetite. That's for most people. About 10%, 10, 20% of patients who have coronavirus though, and particularly older individuals and particularly individuals with um, other diseases that are common. So like obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes are the big ones. Um, those patients will end up in the hospital and the reason why they'll predominantly end up in the hospital is because they can't breathe, that they, that they really feel like they can't breathe and then they need extra oxygen. And that's just not a good thing to feel. And those patients undoubtedly have, they feel really, really bad. Like they're really, really sick with the flu, chills, aches, body pains, uh, fever. And on top of that, they can't breathe, so they're in the hospital. Most of those will go on to be better, um, but some of those will end up with even more problems. And those problems, the, the biggest problem is that they can't breathe so much that they will need us to place a breathing tube into their lungs, into their through, into their mouth, into their lungs, uh, and they are they are sedated for that. And so you're unconscious or semi-conscious on a ventilator, um, and uh, you have a machine that is doing the breathing for you. And the reason why you need that tube is that if we took it out of you, you couldn't breathe on your own and you would die. Those patients often have many of those patients will have clots, so they'll have clots either. Um, in their legs, um, they can have clots in their heart. So those would be like heart attacks with some chest pain. They can have clots in their brain, so a stroke, or they can have clots in their lungs, uh, and we call those pulmonary embolisms, which make it even harder to breathe and have some pain. Again, most patients with a lot of these things will get better, but but you know, having you know, being in your fifties and sixties and having your first heart attack, you don't ever go back to where you were before. Uh, people's patients breathing, even if they get better and they don't are able to get off a ventilator, ultimately, um, a lot of them we're seeing are having chronic breathing problems uh, or will have chronic breathing problems for the rest of their life. And, and the biggest part is that if you end up on a ventilator, this thing takes weeks. This is not an hour or two of being on a ventilator. Patients end up on ventilators for two to three weeks. Uh, and so they are immobilized. Uh, and yes, we try to wake them up so that they're awake, but they are also on you know, some sedation. And so they're not quite there and, and, and they're, they're immobilized. And so uh, they lose uh, a lot of mass, uh, muscle mass and strength. And when they get, if they were, are able to recover, they are probably going to end up in a rehab facility and they will undoubtedly have lifelong 
um, uh, consequences, particularly the patients who get uh, uh, put on ventilators. For the people out there getting the antibody test going, I must have had it and I had no symptoms. This is great. Can they get it again? Um, so we are not 100% sure, but there is clearly some evidence now that patients are potentially able to get it again. Um, we know from SARS-CoV-1, the first SARS, that patients lost their antibodies. People who generated antibody responses lost their antibodies at, at around two years. Um, but we never had a, we never had the SARS-CoV-1 sort of circulate a lot, and so we didn't sort of see what happened. There, there are there are examples now of patients who had antibodies or have antibodies who are getting it again. Not all antibodies are protective, and so you can generate an antibody, and that antibody might not actually protect you from the virus. Um, some of them are protective, and some of them are just sort of they they react to the virus, but they don't do anything. Uh, and so it is possible to have an antibody response and get infected, at least we see examples of it, but what, what, what the risk of that is, is, is unclear. Uh, we, don't, we don't know enough about the disease yet. Um, okay, one last question, non-COVID related. I have two questions. One is, do you eat red meat? Uh, yeah, I had a delicious, uh, uh, <laughs> I smoked a brisket yesterday, it was delicious. <laughs> two. I shouldn't eat red meat, but I, I do. <laughs> two. You haven't seen, I, I, we have not seen you in person in at least a decade, right? Yeah, I think so. It's got to be. I, this, is how, this is when I lived in Hell's Kitchen. We lived in Hell's Kitchen. This is it's a wedding. Last, yeah, it's a wedding. Last time was um, wedding. Who yes. looks yeah. better out of um, me and Amit? Oh, you do. I look I'm better than Amit? Oh, yeah. God, oh, this is I great. Um, are we obese? Are you talking about Delta or are you talking about, uh, no. Do, are we, no you would, would you consider us <laughs> slightly overweight? Um, it's hard to see in, uh, with the video. I don't want to, I don't want to, um, no, go for it. Uh, I, I heart, you guys look great. Just give us a physical I right can't, now. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you're doing great for your age. Okay. Can we start texting you when we have a cold and we think it's cancer? Uh, yes, you can. You can always text me, no matter what. Great, because WebMD, I always have brain cancer, <laughs> no matter what it is, and I'm just sick of of them not, you know, with their bedside manner and not really reassuring yeah. me that it's probably not that. It's probably a stub toe. They go straight for the jugular. Every I, time. Yeah, no, you, you're 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 more than happy to text me whenever. I'm happy to tell you that you don't have brain cancer. Well, man, congratulations on everything you've accomplished. Um, I remember you and Ed back in, in medical school and you guys have both gone on to do some pretty amazing things. And I, I feel better hearing this from you. I mean, I think the challenge with a lot of us, including myself, is we're weak. We are not built for this, or at least we don't think we are. We've never had to deal with anything like this. So, you know, we've been trying to social distance and, and do the right thing since March. And, and then when numbers started going down, we don't really understand that that doesn't mean you can't start going over people's houses and hanging out. And it's really hard. So I, I do want to put that out there. This is not easy. Like wear a mask and stop seeing your family. Like when you can't uh, see your mother or your father and hug them. And, and it's like, it's really weird. So I think it's important that people like you keep telling us uh, how serious this is, because unless you get it and you're in the hospital, it's hard to trust anybody because it's been so politicized. And, and for me personally, the, the only people I'm listening to are the medical experts and the scientists. Everyone else can fuck right off. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. The majority of people who get this thing will get better. And that's positive. Right. Um, it's just that uh, many, 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 many people uh, who get this thing 
uh, are not going to get, you know, some of them might die and many of them will be sort of affected for, for life uh, and particularly, you know, folks who are older. And, and so, you know, if, if I think one of the things that you have to wrestle with is as a country, if you want to live with a 1% mortality rate and have 3 million people die, right? That's 1% of this country. Like if that's something you want, 3 million who die and, and maybe, you know, 10 times that who end up with some sort of chronic debilitating, you know, disease, like that's not a world that I want to live with. And so, yes, this is, most people do get better, but this is very serious. And I, and I think that you, like, you know, watching people who were healthy, who are now on a ventilator and can't breathe and 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 die watching that has been horrible and, and i think every physician who's taking care of covid 19 patients will tell you the exact same story i can't imagine anyone telling you anything differently before we let you go i also just want to say i hope you guys who are in there seeing this every day also have some way to you know talk it out and deal with it because i can't even imagine you know, having it every single day, watching something be politicized and then seeing people die because of it. I don't know what that could do to somebody. And, you know, you're still human, even though even though you, you're smarter than me, you're still human. And I, and I hope you you have you have some sort of an outlet. And if it's brisket, I like brisket and I get it. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm lucky I have a good family. And uh, and, uh, you know, we all talk about these things uh, and we all have to find we all find ways to get it off our chest with each other. So uh, but thanks for thinking about us. We appreciate it. Great. More, thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. My pleasure. And we'll talk soon about not this. I'm glad we all reconnected. Let's let's not go so long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you can send me, like I said, send me a text message and I'll tell you that you don't have bring. I'm going to get your number right after this, so it's happening. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mark. All right, bye. Take care. All right. Um, uh, that was actually informative. I, it was it's weirdly scary, but also I'm so glad we did it. Yeah. When yeah. you hear somebody that can just like, like talk about it and, and it just sound normal and it's just like, okay, this is serious. Guys, yeah. wear a mask. It's yeah. not that hard. Put, yeah. put, keep a mask in your car. Yeah. Keep sanitizer. If you go into the grocery store, wear the fucking mask, wash your hands and like stop getting in people's faces. Like it's it, okay. It's actually such a low bar to meet. Such a low so bar to meet. Low. It's it's we're not people are not asking really much of you to just put a little piece of cloth or whatever across your nose and mouth. I mean that's really not that much. And can I be honest? Half of these people that don't want to do it, they should be covering up their nasty faces anyway. <laughs> okay? Yeah, I said it. Look at the pictures. With the guns and your bellies and your fake dyed hair. I'm over it. Put a mask on anyway. Let's uh Let's do it again next week. We'll get back to politics. There's so much to talk about there. Um, but thanks for tuning in. And uh, find us on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we're around. No Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by uh, Amit Prakash. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>